0: Dot, spot sort of comes up at, at church um it's, it's like you know it's got a nice little message for the kids but i ever really like it when the holy spirit decides to work and his message goes beyond the front row to me <laughs> i'm not sure if you had that sense this morning about the message that god was giving the kids um that it might have come a bit further than the front row um to that's meant for the, to the adults will certainly go beyond the front row so what don't i know, pray for us is as, as i come to do that father we thank you so much for your word we thank you that we're here together with your word so that you're present and we do ask because you know you'll speak we do ask for ourselves by the holy spirit help that that will listen and as we come to a, an all too familiar part of your word, words that are familiar to us, that we won't take them for granted, but they'll have a fresh, fresh impact on us. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Uh, one night uh, in my house, a, f- a number of years ago now, we had some friends over for, for a, a bit of a party, bit of, a bit of dinner and there was an awkward conversation between uh, two of my mates. Uh, One of them was an arborist, so he's a tree expert, and the other a neurosurgeon, uh, so obviously a, a brain expert. And my friend the arborist had just read this book about this theory on left brain and right brain and how Depending on which way you're orientated, it sort of impacts, you know, sort of your, you know, personality or what your interests are. Um, I think something like, I'm not really sure, but something like, you know, your, your right brain or your left brain's to do with creativity or something like that. And your right brain, which I can never remember because I'm quite left brain orientated. But I think it's something to do with, you know, being very rational and logical and kind of engineer type. I might have got that right and simplistic, but and so he he was quite enamoured with this, my friend the arborist, and, and so he was he was talking about his reading of the book and, and what he thought about it with my friend the brain expert. And he was really giving a quite a, you know, detailed and passionate sort of, you might even say, sermon about what he'd learnt. Uh, hardly taking a breath, but then he did just take a breath, enough to ask my friend, the brain expert, what he thought of this theory. And my friend, the brain expert, sort of, well, not quite dismissive, but basically said, look, I'm not too sure there's much in that theory, from what I know. Anyway, uh, my friend at that point had one of two options, didn't he? Um, Well, sadly, he didn't actually know my friend was a brain expert, so... If, if he did, though, if he did, which he did find out later on, but it didn't change his approach, you, you might think um, he could either be humble and then actually defer to my friend, thinking he might actually know more than me. I know a lot about trees. He probably knows a little bit more about brains. He could humble himself in that way, or just can be proud and think, oh, I, mean, I don't really care what he thinks. This is what, this is what I think. Uh, he did find out later on from his wife that my friend was a brain expert, but it didn't actually change. He said, oh, I would have still seen <laughs> As we come to this passage, it's, it's interesting because Jesus is telling this story because of two kinds of people. And if you, if you go to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, you, you get the two groups of people. Uh, now the tax collectors and sinners, one group were all gathering around to hear Jesus. As one group, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus telling, then he, he goes on to tell these stories, and, and including the prodigal son story as we, as we know it. But there's two groups of people that are represented that he's telling the story to, two kinds of people. You might say the humble, the tax collectors and sinners, who actually was sitting at the feet of Jesus, humbly wanting to hear him, gathered around to hear him. But then you've got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who muttered and clearly they're not humble, they're proud. They're making a judgment on Jesus. What is he, why is he doing what he's doing? And so Jesus tells this story and as we think about the, kinds, the two kinds of people he's teaching us, uh, teaching them, got, it, it helps us think about um, what he might be teaching us. And so there's two kinds of people actually then represented in two brothers in a story as a way of understanding the two groups, and so us, and then so the response of God to these people. So, as I said, two kinds of people represented by two sons. Let's look at the the two sons in the story. Firstly, the younger son. And so the story starts there was a man who had two sons. There's the scene being set. One man, two sons. The opening scene, having got the setting, is the younger son says something. And he says something to his father. And this is what he says, Father, give me my share of the estate. That's the opening scene. This younger son, he'd you have to say very boldly, making a demand of his father. He wants the money he would get when his father is what? Dead. <laughs> Essentially, he's saying, you know, it's a sort of, sort of, some just disrespectful request. It's as if he's saying, I wish you were dead. Clearly, he wanted to live life his way. He didn't want to be under the control of the father anymore, as would have been the case. And you could say, well, he couldn't get rid of the father, although it seems he might be, could have he could just be one step away from that. But he could live as though his father is dead but he needs some fast cash that he knows he can get from the father it's as though Tim Keller in his book The Prodigal God has some great helpful thoughts about this and he says it's like his relationship to his father has been a a way of enjoying the father's wealth and now he's had enough, he wants out give me what I want and then you get the father's response, just in the words of the narrator, so he divided his property between them. The son goes off to a far country and, of course, parties, living life his way and his time and his place. You can imagine. you know, Clothes, fancy cars, movies, women. And, of course, the money runs out but then things go from bad to worse uh, because a famine hits at the same time. Not only are his resources coming to the end, everyone's resources coming to the end. And so he ends up eating with the pigs in the mud. And so here we have a picture of this young man. He's made a break for freedom, self-discovery, but he ends up with well, certainly not freedom. And we'll see, yes, some self-discovery. But he's not free, is he? I mean, the picture is that he cannot even choose what he eats. He can't even choose, about, make choices about the essentials in life. Uh, Skylab astronauts back in the day did an experiment where a man was positioned in a space vehicle, like a capsule, so that he was floating but not moving, if you can picture that. He's lying horizontally, and if he stretched out his arm, he was a metre away from the, the edge of the capsule, the wall. And then he was told to move himself in this experiment to the wall, and so they left him to try and move towards the wall. And of course, he twisted and he rolled and he somersaulted in, you would say, absolute, seemingly absolute freedom. But then when he stopped, he was still one metre from the wall. Being at rest, he was in bondage to his own centre of gravity. He could spin around his centre of gravity, but he could not move it. And in fact, if he was left there, of course he would have died. This is the picture of the younger son. This is what he discovered. A level of apparent freedom, but really no freedom at all. He became in bondage to his own disobedience and selfishness and sinfulness, didn't he? And it's easy for us to make a break for freedom and self-discovery only to find that we're not free at all. So that's the younger son. What about the, the elder brother? Now the scene with him, featuring, starts with him finding out his brother had returned home. And you noticed his response in the story when he finds that his younger son returns home. It's one of anger. So although he's been at home with his father, making you think he has a relationship with his father, he doesn't go and ask his father what's going on. He asks one of the servants. It's interesting, isn't it? The younger son, as he self-discovers where he's ended up, he wants to become one of the servants. But this older brother who we learn has everything of the father, it's as if he is one of the servants, and that's who he asks, that's who he relates to, to find out about what's going on. He goes and asks one of the servants. When he's not a servant at all, he's a son. And he refuses to go into the party the father has thrown in celebration of the younger son returning. It's an expression of disapproval of the welcome of the father that's given to the younger son. His action is it's a classic passive, aggressive, kind of Aussie thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> By his sort of sulking away from the party. He's trying to make a comment, he's trying to communicate very passively, but with using no words. He's saying to the father, I think you've done the wrong thing by his actions. Let's go back to verse 28. The older brother became very angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, this son of yours, notice, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. What's going on here? It's like this son, for all the years of apparent perfect obedience, he's been calculating that he's now owed a lot. Where his brother has done nothing to earn anything, he got everything, he's saying I've never disobeyed, I have rights, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. How dare you give to the one who's undeserving? He doesn't even look to his father in loving respect. He just says, look. It's like, hey you, what are you doing with my resources, even though they're his? And you have to say, if, if the youngest son's rebellion is outside the home, the oldest son's rebellion is inside the family home. It reminds me of the boy who was disobedient, and so his parents sent him to the corner go to the corner, Johnny, and go and sit in the corner. So Johnny responds and goes and sits in the corner and then looks up and says, I might be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. It's so easy to display by your actions that you're conforming in obedience, but in actual fact that you're not. The older brother may be at home with the father, but he's still rebelling. He's only compliant as long as the father is doing what he thinks he should. And as soon as he doesn't, he shows his true heart. Jesus is talking about the two brothers as a way of showing the two basic ways people try and find happiness and fulfillment and a way to God. The way of self discovery, a break for freedom, or the way of moral conformity. So you could say the the younger son represents the tax collectors and sinners. They're trying to find their way in life by self-discovery. People who are free to pursue their own goals their own way. The older brother represents the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Label them the moral conformists. They, They believe they deserve a place in heaven. And that God owes them everything. Because they are moral and even religious. Jesus is giving us a picture of two kinds of people. And we're meant to read ourselves into the story. Which kind of person are we? Two approaches. Some moral conformists. Some rebellious prodigals. And Tim Keller makes an interesting insight where he says some moral conformists or religious people actually maintain a secret younger brother, second life as well. Well, from all appearances, they're moral conformists and religious people attending church. But in the quietness of their own hearts and their own lives, there's something that just shows that they actually are younger, rebellious sons. The older brother is as alienated from the father as the younger son was when he was in the, in the mud with pigs. So there's two forms of the way we rebel against God, two expressions of sin. Being very bad and breaking all the rules, as we saw in the younger son, being very bad and breaking all the rules, which is how we typically think of sin, I think. But Jesus is saying that being very good and keeping all the rules and becoming self-righteous is also an expression of sin being very good and keeping all the rules and becoming self-righteous. Either way, we're trying to be God. God of our own lives by rebelling, God of our own lives by being self-righteous so we don't need God because we're good enough in ourselves. You could say that's the DIY approach to God. But we do have here a picture of of one kind of God, a prodigal God, because prodigal means reckless abandonment. And that's what you see in the story about the Father. Let's go back and, and read what we learn about the Father. Verse 20 the older brother became angry. Oh, sorry, I'm at the wrong verse. Maybe I should put my glasses on. Verse um, verse twenty. Sorry, it is. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, "Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son." But the father said to his servants. Quick. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. What's the father's response? You can imagine it. I can imagine myself if my son had done that. You rotten son, get out of my sight. No, that's not the father's response. I love the line, while he was still a long way off. The father is watching and waiting for this rebellious son to come home. And though he can't help himself, because grown men don't run, like, you know, Aussie men don't cry, which of course they do, but this man runs lifts his clothes and runs to embrace this son. It's as though he's reckless in his abandonment of all the right things to do in his culture to show his true resp- true response to the sun. He has compassion and he hugs him and he kisses him. It's the ultimate expression of full embrace. But it goes further, doesn't it? The son tries to rehearse his speech but can hardly get it out where the father wants to show that he's welcome, is full-blown. I'm not just going to greet you outside of the home. I'm going to welcome you back into the home because you still have the family name. And he has all, gets all the things done so he can be absolutely clear that he's welcome back. He kisses him. Gives him the best robe, puts a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Gives him, he clothes him like a like royalty, because he's back in the family of the king. It's the picture we have of the embrace, and of course, then he throws a feast, a party. Jesus is saying the Father is like God. God's love and forgiveness is for every kind of sin and any kind of person. It doesn't matter who you are, who you've become, what you've done. And I don't just mean the murderers, the abusers, the thieves, the drunkards, the adulterers, the gossipers, the sexually immoral, but the religious, the self Moral, the self-righteous, the moral conformance. There's nothing the Father cannot forgive. There's no sin that his grace cannot cover. There's no need to clean your life up, get your act together and come to God, just come to him. But the Father's heart towards the older son as well, isn't it? The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father left the party and went out to him and used words with him, pleaded with him. And then verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me. And listen to this. And everything I have is yours. Remarkable. And it takes you back to the younger son, doesn't it? He makes a demand for the estate. Yet what we learn here is that the father has this attitude that, hang on, everything I own is already yours. And so that's true with the oldest son as well. You might have heard of that phrase grace under fire he's the father under fire from his older son whose everything is his and yet the father shows grace gentleness clear calm and absolutely present with the older son making the situation very clear to him you haven't missed out on every anything everything I have as yours come in and eat you know maybe eat some humble pie but come in swallow your pride he wants the son at the feast as well and so that's why Tim Keller calls this the prodigal God story because we've got the reckless or extravagant welcome of the father it's grace making an offer and will it be received? You know, unlike the younger son, we, we don't know what happens with the older son. And that's, that's a bit of a challenge to the religious people, isn't it? The teachers or the law and the Pharisees. In the story, we don't know what happened with them. There's no happy ending. Which reminds us, of course, that there's one way to God. Jesus is about to say in a couple of chapters later on, the the humble are in and the proud are out. That is, those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. You might have heard the famous story of a newspaper in the UK asking the question, what's wrong with the world? and how the famous thinker and author of the time, G.K. Chesterton, uh, wrote in response to that question, wrote in a, a, a short letter to the paper. It simply said, "'Dear Sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton.'" It's pretty clear what he thinks, isn't it? There's another famous saying by, uh, from, a, from a line in a, a book by Leo Tolstoy, where he says, everyone thinks about changing the world, but no one thinks about changing themselves. There's a humble response, isn't it? It's the attitude of someone who has understood the message of Jesus. The younger son, yes, he did strike out for self-discovery, but he came to his senses, didn't he? He did discover something about himself and that he needed to return and that he couldn't find freedom in the way that he thought he could. He returned to the Father saying sorry. It's the first step, isn't it? Humbly recognising the terrible situation you're in. Out of relationship with God. The mess you've made of your life. Coming to your senses and returning and saying sorry to the Father. Grace, by its nature, is free. It's free for us, but it cost God, didn't it? In order for us to be forgiven, someone had to take the punishment. Someone had to pay the price, because forgiveness is costly. And the very man who's telling the story, Jesus, goes on, and a few pages later in Luke's account of his life, you read that Jesus died to take that punishment we deserved, to pay the price for our rebellion in whatever way it was expressed. So grace is free. It only needs to be accepted. Religion says obey to be accepted, whereas Jesus says you're accepted by grace. And if you have not all ready, don't go away today without having accepted that grace. And if you have, be reminded that the way on is the the way in is the way on. The Christian life continues to be lived in one of humility, recognizing our great need of God and His grace in a daily sense. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your message to us here. We thank you for what it shows about who you are in the Father and that, how that heart of yours played out so that your son gave his life in death for us so that we can return, so that you treat us as royalty in your family because of the death of Jesus and we pray this in his name, Amen.